Join us virtually for the 2020 Zero Mental Health Symposium next Wednesday through Friday. Mental Health Association Oklahoma will bring together state, regional, and national experts to focus on healing from historical trauma during this three-day event. And thank you to our sponsors who make this event possible with a special thank you to the Anne and Henry Zero Foundation. 1921 was a point in history that we all experienced, especially we can see the impact here in Tulsa. But guess what? The lingering effects are still here. I feel like that is something that needs to be highlighted, bolded, and really still spoken about. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, our guests are Joya Cleveland. She is program manager for Strong Tomorrows. That is a program that serves expectant and parenting students in Tulsa Public Schools. Joya is passionate about making a difference in the lives of others and bridging inequality gaps. Also with us today is Erica Stone Burnett. She is a second year Master of Social Work student at the University of Oklahoma. Erica's academic focus is on community organizing, policy, queer theory, and the social drivers behind racial health disparities. She's a senior writer for the Black Wall Street Times and contributed an essay to an anthology on the 1921 Tulsa Brace Massacre. So together, Joya and Erica will be co-presenters during the Zero Mental Health Symposium. And the theme is Healing from Historical Trauma. And you can register today at zerosymposium.org. And their session is titled Historical Trauma from Shackles to Sooners. As the session description explains, historical trauma emerged as a mental health concern in the 1980s with an initial focus on indigenous people. Since then, the concept has expanded to include populations who have experienced genocide. Colorist historical trauma focuses on the lingering effects of past generational trauma, although some argue historical trauma is everyday trauma due to systemic racism. To that end, information and education about the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow through the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, and urban renewal will be provided, including updates on mass graves. Finally, mental health care providers will learn best practice techniques for working with clients experiencing colorist historical trauma, as well as ways to advocate. Okay, let's get the conversation started. The mental health download starts now. Joya, can you explain to our audience how colorist historical trauma has affected you maybe personally or somebody you love or somebody you serve? As a biracial woman, Afro-Latina, Black and, you know, from Latin origin and my roots, being a professional in this society that we live in, I feel like I have experienced historical trauma. I remember growing up and my mother telling me, you basically belong to three um, underserved demographics. Not only are you Black and Hispanic, and for some that can be a strike against you, but you're also a woman. And I think understanding my place in society was difficult growing up because I was always under the impression, like, why do we have a place in society? Where does that terminology even come from? I didn't think we were similar to other countries that legitimately owned their caste system. So growing up in this country, growing up as multi, you know, race, Understanding that other people would view me 
less than or unqualified, even though you have the education, you have the experience to understand being Black and Hispanic and being a woman put me less than other peers was really challenging. So that was something that I had to grapple with growing up. And quite honestly, it's something that I still deal with. What tools and support networks have helped you the most in dealing with that personal colorist historical trauma? That's a good question. I feel like what I have done was look to people within my community who have achieved success. And success is defined by different things for different people. But for me, it was those who not only had that leadership experience, but also would make their presence known in a room and to get an agenda and have progress. Because I feel like a lot of times we have to unite ourselves with those who are stronger than us to help us stand up sometime, but also to give us that knowledge and feedback of how they got there, to lend us that energy, to lend us that support, to lend us that knowledge. I feel like that's what helped me in my career was finding other people within my community that have crossed those boundaries and I look up to them. That has been hugely important for me. And I'm grateful for every single mentor that I've had that not only went before me, but also put me in a level that encourages me that I can go the distance too and actually provide tools and feedback and also, you know, encourage me to do the same, if not more. And then I take that same um, mentorship experience and appreciation and I lend it to other people because I feel like you don't just go the distance by yourself. You always have to reach back and encourage people in your own community. And I have aligned myself with those who are disenfranchised within our community here in Tulsa. I literally, that's what I do. That is my goal is to step out and make sure that I identify myself as an ally to those who need support and help. Yeah, that's beautiful. All right, Erica, for this next question, we'll start with you. You know, this panel is going to feature tips on how mental health care providers can learn best practice techniques for working with clients experiencing colorist historical trauma. So can you share some of those tips with us? Absolutely. I think the most important thing for providers to recognize, especially white mental health providers, is that this is not our history. This is not our experience. So we have to listen and affirm and validate and recognize that despite the fact that, for example, slavery as traditional slavery is not continuing in the United States right now, although we can make an argument about private prisons being overpopulated by people of color as a form of slavery. But what we think of as traditional slavery of African Americans and people of color is not going on right now. But just because we do not see that doesn't mean that there's not contemporary racism. We absolutely see it happening. We see that with Breonna Taylor's murderers have not been arrested yet. We see that with protesters being terrorized by the police for supporting Black Lives Matter. So we have to recognize that racism is still continuing today, has been going on for 400 years. And white people, 
white therapists are still benefiting from the system of white supremacy in this country. And what I mean by that, by white supremacy, is that white people are the default. The white experience is the default. And that's a really difficult thing for most white people and white mental health providers to admit because a lot of people take it very personally. They'll say, I'm not racist. I don't own slaves. I don't subjugate people. But they are still, we are still benefiting from white supremacy if we're not fighting against that every single day. And so starting with recognizing that we don't understand racism, that we will never experience racism and affirming that and validating that and following that, becoming as culturally competent as we can is the next step, which I will be talking about in my presentation. Joya, what tips would you give to mental health professionals in this area? I would say just understanding their role as an ally in the work, because if you have someone before you who's asking for help, asking for support to make sure that you are culturally competent to understand what you don't know and to be your humanity is going to speak volumes and those open-ended questions like, I don't understand, can you tell me more? Because I think one thing that we're definitely going to be speaking about in our session is how many Black people in America have been devalued. And so if you are serving a person of color and you are the professional, sometimes your role as a professional, they're already going to feel less than. So many times making sure their voice is validated, their experience is validated, and also making sure that you are open enough to state what you don't know and don't understand so that you can have that dialogue where they can receive the support and receive the healing and let that begin. Because many times people close themselves off to receiving support because they feel like people don't understand them. So we want to make sure that people are open and honest in those conversations when it's important and when stakes are high. Yeah. Okay. And now let's move over to, let's, you know, you're also going to explain how people can become advocates. So, you know, give us some examples of the ways that you hope people can engage in this advocacy movement. Absolutely. I think the first step is to educate ourselves about what's going on. Reading the news is a great way to start. There is so much information about protests about why Black Lives Matter is important, about breaking down white supremacy. And then each individual has to consider what is their level of comfort with advocacy. For some people, they want to get out and protest. For other people, they want to post on social media. For others, they want to give money. And I think any of those and all of those are really important. It has to come from a place of comfort and maybe it starts with giving money and then the next step is posting on social media and then the next step is actually getting out there. There are a lot of ways to advocate and I hope that people engage in them. 
put yourself out there as far as the cause that are important to you within our societal structure. If you are for this cause, then put it out there because I feel like in the professional realm, a lot of people almost distance themselves from when to call a spade a spade, when to say something is right or wrong because they don't want to misalign themselves, right? And I feel it takes some courage to be an advocate. And I'm gonna say courage again. A lot of people, once you're complacent, you cannot call yourself an advocate. You have to be able to step out and saying, this is wrong and this is what I'm willing to do or this is what I can do. Because in this virtual setting that we're in, Nobody would know that you, you know, are against something or for something unless you state it. It's not to be out there, you know, on every chance you get blowing up social media and always posting things if you want to go ahead. But what I'm saying is to really lend your voice to those those passions and those causes close to your heart so that when someone needs to lean on you, they know you're there. You give what you can when you can, but give something. And I feel like that's important in this movement. Yeah. All right. So as we wind down, I do want to ask you both, you know, I, I don't know how much you've been able to look at the Zero Symposium agenda and some of the keynotes that we're going to have, but is there, what are you guys, and we'll start with, with Erica, what are, what are you excited about the Zero Symposium this year? It's going to be virtual. You know, our keynotes are going to be Tim Wise, Dr. Joy DeGruy, Dr. Daryl Tonema, and Hannibal B. Johnson, um, who's one of the foremost experts on the Tulsa race massacre, but what, you know, what, what are you excited about? Why would you want, why would you encourage someone to, to come to this symposium? I would tell them that in my experience, Zero is a wonderful place to hear amazing speakers. I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, from Hannibal Johnson. He is an expert, a historian on the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. He's also an attorney. I'm looking forward to hearing from Tim Wise, who is a renowned speaker on anti-racism and helping white people engage in anti-racism. Zero itself is such an important group. It brings together so many ideas and innovations and the intersection of contemporary society and historical society and mental health And I think the information is important for clinical providers. I think it's important for researchers. Attending in the past has been really wonderful. And I'm particularly looking forward to this one, learning more about historical trauma. And and Joya, why would you encourage someone to come to the Zero Symposium, including your session? Yes, I'm really excited to hear from um, Dr. Joy DeGruy. Um, And she has a book, actually, the um, post. Slave Syndrome Part 2, Be the Healing. And I'm all about the historical lens of trauma, especially when it comes to the African-American place within the United States of America. And so that is like right up my alley to see what research says and what her thought and framing of the post-traumatic slave syndrome, because that's something that I too believe in, that even though we technically do not have that slavery here in America where we're bonded to the work, I feel like the impact that that had in our nation can still be 
felt today can still be seen today in some of the structures that were placed in order to keep the people in line with who those empower, those oppressive systems, systematic, you know, trauma that we have incurred as people of color. I'm really excited to hear about that. And I feel like that does go along with what me and Erica are going to be talking about in our session with from Shackles to Sooners, right? Because we're given that historical lens of how we got here as far as a people. And 1921 was a point in history that we all especially we can see that the impact here in Tulsa but guess what the lingering effects are still here and I feel like that is something that needs to be highlighted bolded and really still spoken about because you can't just look at a point in history and say well that happened if you don't have any cause to say well it happened and how can we fix it and the first part of fixing a problem is addressing there is a problem and too many people benefit off of the system that was in place and how we have continued within that line and I feel like we do need to address it and really start talking about some tangible solutions of how we do not go backwards because I'm also a very vocal advocate when we talk about progress here in America we have gone backwards and we need to go ahead and move forward and we need to address like how did we get here.